On today's episode, I talked to Tim Scheigel, managing partner at Refinery Ventures. Tim is a serial entrepreneur and investor with roots in the Midwest experience in Silicon Valley and connections around the world. Tim created Share This, a social media pioneer that nearly a billion people use to share online content every month. Share This, based in Palo Alto, California, was one of the fastest growing companies in the country, growing to 50 million in less than four years, which earned him the EY Entrepreneur of the Year in his region. Tim also launched and managed Centrifuge, one of the best performing fund of funds in the country, investing in 15 top tier early stage funds across the US. Tim has been in venture capital since 1998. Prior successes include advertising.com, get to chimp, and dot loop. Tim grew up in Cleveland as a son of a steelworker and Vietnam veteran. He received his bachelor's in electrical engineering from Case Western Reserve University and is a member of YPO, a global network of chief executives. Tim shares a lot of great advice on today's episode. So without further delay, let's get to the show. Tim, thank you for coming out of the Road to the Top podcast. I've been looking forward to our conversation uh, for a while now. So officially, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Long time in the making. Yes. Yeah. So Tim, where I would love to start is just kind of back at starting in college. So I understand you have your Bachelor of Science degree um, in electrical engineering from Case Western Reserve University. Mm-hmm. So at the time, did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and eventually start a, a venture capital firm or did life originally have a different career path? Uh, good question. So um, great question. That's one I use with any my kids and any other young folks that are trying to figure out what to do. And uh, so I came from a large family, mostly blue collar. So one of the one of few cousins who uh, had 36 cousins on one side, uh, one of the few that went to college. Uh, so I had no idea and I didn't have many people that could help me figure out what to do. But my dad was an electrician never went to college, was in Vietnam, worked in steel mills, but he knew how to, he could rebuild televisions and yeah, all sorts of stuff. Um, and I was around technology a lot. I could have gone into any field, I had good grades, you know, good student, blah, blah, blah. But I chose technology because I just said, you know, the world's becoming more technology oriented. That was it. You know, and I'm also a guitar player, so I use a lot of tech, you know, with music. And um, so electroengineering sounds pretty good. And um, that, that was the degree. It, there wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I knew that there were a lot of things you could do with it, right? That it could go in a lot of ways. And I thought it's a solid, it's a solid degree. And so that's part of what I like to tell, what I've told our kids and others is, you know, get the degree, stop worrying about what you're going to do. Because you, you don't know, you have no idea. Get, but get a solid degree, something that's marketable, something that's going to teach you a real skill. Uh, my son got his degree in aerospace engineering, and now he test drives cars. You know, and he was, he was kind of struggling to get through it. It was, it was rough. And I was like, Joe, you get your degree, and you're now an aerospace engineer. Like, you know, right. You know, as my wife, who was at the Cleveland Clinic, said, you know, what do they call the person who graduates last in their class in medical school? A doctor. <laughs> doctor. Right. It's like, just get the degree. Get it done. Nobody says you have to do you know, that, uh, whatever you're doing in school the rest of your life, right? It's, the, the real world has all sorts of options. And so 
and the uh, University of Cincinnati, for example, you know, has the, the co-op program. Other schools have it. Um, uh, two of our kids did that. I think it's really good uh, experience to get, or, and maybe if you don't have co-op, shadow somebody in an industry that you're interested in. And so when my kids did the, the co-op, you'd ask them, you say, did you like your co-ops? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, sorry. And they're like, no, it was awesome. Because in three short months, I learned I don't want to do that, which is much better than taking a job out of school and being stuck there potentially for three years in a job you don't like. So until you experience it, you don't really, you don't really know. You don't have a basis to know unless you have family in it or something like that. So anyway, I just thought the world was going to be technology oriented, get the electrical engineering degree. And, you know, the world started making a lot more sense soon after that, but not before that didn't at all. Right. Yeah. A, a lot of people is they're in college or getting into it. They feel so much stress on trying to figure it all out and you don't have to right. all, have it all figured out. And you could talk to people who maybe they're doing what you would want to do pick their brain and internships are a great way to kind of redirect. So if, if someone's in college and is in maybe even kind of relating to, you know, your kids, if they're in something that they're not really enjoying, how would you go about just suggesting different frameworks? To well, yeah, networking, asking people for help. Um, it's amazing how few people actually ask for help. So that's the first thing is it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to reach out to people, even if you cold call them. You know, it's amazing. You could say, you know, I'm thinking of going to work for Procter & Gamble in brand management, but I have no idea. You go find somebody on their website and call them or send them an email and say, hey, I'm a student. I'm studying this. I'm thinking about brand management, but I'm really struggling. I'd love to get your, to buy you a coffee and get your input. People love those emails. And they, they, they respond to it because they were there at one point. And so, uh, that's what I would encourage, you know, network, reach out, ask for it. Don't be afraid to ask for help. That's awesome. That's great advice. Um, can you share your professional background kind of as you were graduating college to where you are now as a managing partner? Sure. Refinery so, Ventures? First company uh, that I got a job with was in Cincinnati. It was a small company. They did a lot of work with Apple Computer and large corporations, including Procter & Gamble. That started my connection to Silicon Valley. And they basically said, hey, it was a 10-person company. And um, it was because I worked with uh, Apple Macintoshes and music that got me that got the company interested in me. And um, they said, well, we have two different types of jobs. You can, this kind of gets right to our point about interns and stuff. They said, you could be a programmer or we have this thing we need called a network engineer because we're building these applications that run on a network and networks were pretty new at the time. And we need to build networks for companies like Procter and Gamble. And I'm like, well, what's that involved? And they're like, well, you'd be on site and you'd go, you know, travel and visit. And I'm like, that sounds interesting. So, so I kind of knew that my personality wasn't going to do well, just sitting in a cubicle programming all day, even though I knew how to do that. And the traveling and the networking was something new. And I, I couldn't claim to be an expert at it. Right? So I didn't tell them I could do it. I, they just they gave me the offer. So I took it. It was the best thing ever. Um, and it 
it gave me all these opportunities. And I, I guess the lesson from that is, you know, it's the Carol Dweck growth mindset thinking. Be willing to step out and take on something, even though you may not be an expert at it. If there's a chance you can learn from it, that's how you build your skill set. If you're smart, if you're smart enough to get an electrical engineering degree or smart enough to get a business degree at Miami or whatever, you're probably smart enough to figure it out. And everybody knows you're a college grad, so don't don't panic, right? Um, so anyway, that was my first job. That got me exposed to Silicon Valley, and and I did some international consulting and tried to do my own startup, which failed. And I wanted to get into venture capital, and I thought one way to do it is you know one way to do it is go to Harvard Business School, right? Mm-hmm. Or the other way to do it is to start a company and if you develop a good relationship with the VCs, they might want to hire you. I didn't necessarily think they would hire me if my company failed, (laughs) but it turns out they do, right? It's just, you know, startups fail all the time. And when you're young and you're doing a startup, odds are you'll fail. You know, there's plenty of VCs in Silicon Valley that won't invest in you unless you failed at least once because it's great learning opportunity. So anyway, um, That's 1998. So I joined Blue Chip Venture Company. It was the first venture firm in Cincinnati. We ended up having, when I was there, over the span of nine years, uh, four funds totaling 600 million. So it was one of the biggest in the Midwest. And that's back in, you know, the 2000s, which is pretty big. And um, I got to go through the dot-com bubble and bust. And then in 2000, late 2007 is when um, I had this idea for a company that, excuse me, became Share This. So I was, and it came from, I invested in a company called Advertising.com, which was bought by AOL for about half a billion. So I knew something about internet advertising. And I had this notion, intuition, whatever you want to call it, that the next big thing was going to be more people-oriented, not website-oriented, but people-oriented. This is before the term social network was a thing. And I did a call. I cold called somebody. I cold called. I was a big fan of complexity theory and things like genetic algorithms, which is a form of machine learning. And the guy who basically invented genetic algorithms and wrote the book on it is Dr. David Goldberg, and he was at University of Illinois. So I cold called him and said, hey, I got this idea. I want, to, I want you to tell me whether you think it's stupid or not. And if it's not stupid, I want to get your thoughts on it. Well, he thought about it and came back and said, it's not stupid. Actually, it's a good idea. And uh, we started what became Share This. So the insight was that people don't get most of their information from Google, which is what everybody assumes, right? Search. If you're searching for something, you probably already know what you want, right? Where they get information was links people share with each other. And at the time, in 2000, this is you know 2005 or six, uh, nobody tracked it. If you went to Google or Netscape or AOL or Yahoo and said, how many people share stuff and what are they sharing? Nobody could answer that question. Nobody on the whole internet. So I said, that's got to be a big opportunity. And um, we launched and it took off and it became one of the fastest growing companies in the country. 
Uh, and it, so whenever you share something on a website, you see the little sharing tools, you see the little symbol, that's, that's share this. And uh, one of the earliest social media you know, companies out there. And um, ultimately, you know, we created it here in Cincinnati, but ultimately set up headquarters in Palo Alto. We had an office in LA and Chicago, New York. I was traveling all over and, and uh, the investors wanted to have thought a CEO needs to be in Silicon Valley. And I was happy traveling there. I did not want to move my family there. And um, my wife, my wife made a very good point because my kid, the kids were like junior high. She said, uh, look, you're going to move me there. I'm not going to know anybody. And then you're going to still have to go travel all the time. I'm like, you're right. Why move them and you know be on their own? So I hired somebody else to be CEO. I became chairman. And so shortly after that, um, there was an initiative in Cincinnati started called Centrifuge. And it started mostly by Procter & Gamble and all the other big companies in Cincinnati. And they approached me about building and creating a fund of funds. Right, a fund of what funds. What that yeah. means is yeah, a fund that invests in other venture funds. And they got the idea from Renaissance Venture Fund in Michigan, which was basically the first of its kind. And I knew the guy who ran it. I knew him when he was a VC before he ran that. So I called him up and he he convinced me to do it. And uh, the um, I did it for four years. It gave me a great opportunity to help local entrepreneurs, but also to evaluate over 200 venture funds around the country. So um, basically, I wore three hats. I was an entrepreneur. I was a, a GP, meaning general partner in a venture fund, and an LP, a limited partner in about 25 venture funds. So kind of rare to find people that have all three of those things. Um, and what I noticed, and this leads to where I am today, was in the Midwest, Everybody loves to complain about there's no venture capital here. And that's true. I mean, there's there's some, but not, not like there are on the coast. But that's not the problem. Uh, because you have to understand the laws, you know, laws of physics, there's laws of capital, which is capital follows growth. If you're growing, people will want to invest, guarantee you. But investors in Boston or Silicon Valley do not need to invest in ideas. They're surrounded by ideas all day long. So what you need is growth metrics, right? So, and there's plenty of seed investors in the area. So uh, you need to demonstrate that you have growth. And if you do, you can attract more capital. And what I saw were two things. If you look at uh, pitch book data on venture capital, the Great Lakes region and New England region Similar number and size of angel, uh, seed investing. They're similar. But when you put A and B and C rounds in, New England's four times bigger than the Great Lakes. Massive difference. So the drop-off, if you will, and the problem is not first money. It's the, later money. It's, it's getting the Series A, and Series A requires data. It's like Tim Draper told me one time, you know, um, at the seed stage, the investors are investing in your dream. Right. And then in the next phase, they're investing in the rumor. And then by the B round, they're investing in the data. Right. That all shifted from B round now to A round. But um, so that was one problem I saw. The next problem I saw 
that really got me excited and motivated is um, is when I would talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in the Midwest and I would, they'd, let's say they had half a million or a million in revenue. I would say, well, what has to be true for you to do $10 million in revenue next year? And they'd look at me like I was crazy. And it dawned on me that it's they, they weren't thinking that way, not because they're not smart or not because it's not a good idea. Uh, they've never seen it before. And their investors haven't seen it before. If you go to Silicon Valley, uh, over a third, almost 40% of entrepreneurs that get venture money have prior experience in a hypergrowth company. Not as the founder, that's kind of the red herring, but they, they had a product or, you know, had a marketing or some other role, and they saw what it took to go from zero to 10 to 100, potentially. And so that's like, like I said, 35 to 40%. And in the Midwest, it's like 5%. So not only do the people not have that experience, they don't know people with that experience. I said, ah, that's, as an engineer, right, That that's the underlying limiting factor to why the Midwest has never really grown to its potential. But we all know we have great universities, right? From Miami to Carnegie Mellon, Case Western, Michigan, Purdue, you know, Wisconsin. I mean, there's, we have great universities, great talent, great IP. What we don't have is a lot of experienced high growth entrepreneurs that know how to commercialize that IP. So that, that insight was what led me to create Refinery Ventures in 2017. Pack a little bit there. So the first is with um, Share This, so the company that you founded. So as you mentioned, so you grew to 50 million in revenue in less than four years and then earned through EY Entrepreneur of the Year. So exploding growth. Was it a challenge early on in convincing um, partners or companies that this is something that's important? Because if you look at the data, you say, oh, everyone just kind of knew this was coming. But in the very beginning, because it was so innovative, was it a challenge? It was. It was. When I first said, it's sharing, right? People are like, huh? Like copy and paste? I'm like, yeah. You know, like it was like so obvious it was stupid. Right. But what I knew, again, kind of as an engineer view of it or analytical or data uh, viewpoint of it, I, I did some research to know that every single user on the Internet, whether young or old, novice, expert, Everybody does that behavior multiple times a day, right? And nobody pays attention to it. Nobody tracks it. And so anything that happens that millions of people do, you know, hundreds of millions of times a day in a month, there's money in there, right? There, there's some way to monetize it. There's multiple ways to monetize it. But first you have to have the data. So as I kept talking about it, the investors started perceiving news articles and the world around them. And they started seeing the word sharing come on up more and more and titles of articles, you know, people sharing this, sharing that. And they're like, okay. You know, so, so finally started getting it. When it really became obvious though, was when we launched the product uh, as a plugin, a WordPress plugin for websites. Um, you know, my goal, it was in November. It was like first week in November of 2007, uh, we were hoping that we could get 200 websites to put us on their website in the first, in the first two months. So November, December, 
we just did a blog post, a WordPress blog post about the tool and a thousand websites installed it in the first week. Wow. And it never slowed down from there. It just never slowed down. So that was the first completely obvious indicator that we were onto something. And I share that because if you don't have, ideally that's what you want in a startup. There's a lot of hard work, but if you hit it right, it's more like there's a pull function than a push, right? And that all has to do with market, you know, market timing and market fit. If you're, you could have a great product and great team, but if the market's not ready, it's not going to go anywhere. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And it's not your fault. It's just, matter of fact, one of the common mistakes I think in venture capital is investing too early. So the analogy I use is, um, you know, a lot of people here when they talk about investing, uh, talk about like the horse and the jockey analogy. You know, do you invest in the horse or the jockey? Well, I, I think it really sh- more appropriately should be the surfer and the wave, right? You could have this world-class surfer that has the best surfboard imaginable, right? It's carbon, graphite, smooth. You know, it's like just this unbelievable, most advanced surfboard ever. And if they stand in still water, what's going to happen? Going nowhere. Going nowhere. Meanwhile, you could take a hack on a two-by-four and put them out on a big swell, and they're probably going to figure out how to surf, right? <laughs> so it's the market, you know, and and market timing is something that we don't control, right? It's, 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 it's hard to understand. It's almost like weather sometimes. You know, it's like, is, is a company successful because they made the market or because the market was ready and therefore they became successful, right? right? So it's, it's – um, that's how we look at it from an investing standpoint, right? If you don't get that signal early enough in a company, you have to wonder, is, is it the right product or is it just great product? The market's just not ready yet. Right, right. And with those early adopters, you removed all the friction of making it really easy to, to use the product, which I think was so helpful with just using the plugin and getting that explosive growth. Um, the other part I wanted to touch on was Centrifuge. So as you mentioned, it's a fund of funds. And so it was a top 15 um, early stage fund across the U.S. And I guess in your opinion, what was unique about your strategy that you think contributed to that success? Well, the investors, the money behind the Centrifuge Fund was money from these major corporations. So Procter & Gamble, Kroger, uh, um, Western Southern Insurance, Great American Insurance, University of Cincinnati, various hospital systems, children's hospital. Um, So a lot of the big companies in town and those companies represent customers to startups and VCs. So, and VCs are not, you know, they're not too stupid. They know where to find money. So if there's, you know, a new uh, basket of money that they can go get, you know, they're, they're calling you up and they're, they're trying to get in. But our, our advantage was that we could connect them and their portfolio companies with these major corporations. Got it. Got it. That's awesome. As a matter of fact, that's happening literally today as we speak here in the building um, in Cincinnati is the Procter & Gamble annual signal event where they bring in a lot of tech innovators and you know from big companies and small startups. And so there's a whole, uh, you know, uh, show as well as uh, mixing events, you know, with startups and companies happening uh, happening today 
So it's a, it's a pretty successful hub for that. That's awesome. One of the other things that I think is really unique and special about what you do is your podcast called Fast Frontiers, and I highly recommend to people to check it out. Um, you've yeah. had on a lot of great guests on the podcast. We'd love to hear if there are one or two guests that have brought really perspective-shifting viewpoints to you that you still think about to this day or like, wow, that was a really an interesting viewpoint that I think kind of changed the scope. Is there anything that kind of comes to mind of people that you've had on? Yeah. Well, one of the ones I, I always suggest people check out is with Gokul Rajaram. Gokul is a Silicon Valley legend. I recruited him as an advisor when I was starting Share This, and he was he was the head of product for Google AdSense. So the moneymaker. So, pretty big deal, the moneymaker. Uh, unfortunately, he had to ultimately resign because the next job he took was VP of advertising for Facebook. And then he went on uh, from there to do um, – uh, a number of different things, as well as a lot of angel investing. So he's he's on the bo- board of uh, like uh, Trade Desk and I think Coinbase, and uh, he's uh, involved with DoorDash. So a bunch of companies, and he is just like the world's best product guy. And so um, the thing he talked about that I really loved is he said, you know, product teams. Future product teams are always going to now need to have a product data analytics person. That their sole job is just to collect data about product usage to inform the product team about what's working, what's not working, where to, where, you know, where to develop other features, et cetera, et cetera. So he was, he was good. I always, you know, steer people to that one right away. That's awesome. And so as I mentioned at the top in the intro, that you're the managing partner of Refinery Ventures. What kind of goals do you have for the firm, in, let's say, in five years of where you would like to be? Well, we, you know, um, when I was had this insight and I started Refinery, I didn't know, was did I want to do a venture fund again or do I want to do a startup? And I, I probably would have done another startup or something versus just go be a partner in a venture fund. Right. Um, kind of been there, done that. It didn't sound interesting. I'm at, the, at the end of the day, I'm kind of a problem solver. Um, but when I figured out this gap that this market has, I got excited. And, um, you know, you have to get really excited if you want to go fundraise. It's hard to raise money for a startup. It's even harder to raise money for a new venture fund. So you better be ready because you're going to get told no a lot. Um the idea is big enough that it's what I want to do the rest of my life. Like I don't see any, yeah, there's nothing else that's going to get me off of this course uh, because I think it's such a kind of a generational opportunity uh, for the region and our, our thesis and the way we're going about it, I don't think has ever been really tried before. So, um, so that's what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, um, five years from now, we, well, we just hired somebody to focus on recruiting people I call boomerangs, you know, people that might've grown up in the Midwest, go to the coast, get that hyper growth experience and might want to come back. So that's, uh, that program is just getting ready to roll out. And we've, 
had success with that. Uh, one of our best, our best company that went from being worth under 10 million to over a billion was a model where there was an existing technology and company that wasn't going very far. And we matched them up with a hyper growth entrepreneur who happened to be from here. And three years later, it's worth over a billion dollars and have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. We've done two tech spin outs out of Case Western Reserve, also with a similar strategy. Great scientists, great tech, but they were missing the go to market kind of hyper growth entrepreneur CEO. And we help with that matchmaking. And, and now we have uh, the latest one's a company called Picture Health. So um, we are looking to build that community of talent and really create one of the most, my goal is to create, you know, the most impressive, admired network of hypergrowth entrepreneurs in the world, right? That's what I'd love to see. Whether we get there in five years or not, I don't know. But in the next five years, what I do know is we're going to prove this out, that this works. And if it works, I think there's going to be a ton of demand to scale it to other regions around the country, if not around the globe, because I've talked to a lot of them. But at first, just like a startup, I got to prove out the product market fit. I got to prove that this model works in, in a kind of predictable way. And I think if it does, the returns are going to be stellar. Um, our first fund already is, my guess is it's the most successful first fund in Ohio, um, maybe in like the Great Lakes, um, and maybe the most successful fund, period, let alone first fund. Um, so uh, we have, we're off to a really strong start. And so over your the course of your career, you've obviously interacted with a lot of intelligent people and great people that you've just gained insight from. Who have been your biggest mentors and who, what are the biggest lessons that you've learned from those folks? Uh, that's great. Yeah, I. so first of all, for listeners, you know, I love mentors and advisors, people that are going to ask you hard questions, people that you can learn from. So I, I, I create all sorts of reasons to have different advisors and networks and board members and whatnot. Uh, the advisors, uh, one of my, one of the legendary ones that helped me during um, share this was Charlie Meacham. Charlie is a Cincinnati legend. He currently spends most of his time in Palm Springs. He was the guy who created Kings Island. He was Arnold Palmer's best friend and advisor. Uh, he was the commissioner of the LPGA, you know, the Women's Golf League. He was CEO of Taft Broadcasting. Uh, he just super, super smart, super nice, very funny a guy who still at 90 years old, most recently just retired from the board of Messer Construction, multi-billion dollar construction company in Cincinnati at the, at the age of 90. So a lot of the, 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 the people like that, that I consider right, you know, mentors and advisors and friends are still working and still engaged well into their 80s. And that's also what I like about venture capital. I don't plan to retire. It's like keeping yourself active is super important. Uh, one of my um, other um, other advisors on the fund include Glenn Mayfield, who started River Cities here in Cincinnati, Bob Pavey, who started Morgan Thaler in Cleveland back in 1968. And he spends his time between Cleveland and Big Sur. 
And he was, you know, they were early investors in Apple, like the Series A in Apple. And then Noel Fenton, the founder of Trinity Ventures, who um, was, they were the first investors in Starbucks. They're a Silicon Valley firm. So, uh, you know, there's just so much they can share and you can learn from those folks. And they, and, you know, this, again, for your audience, it's amazing. There's no limit to who you might be able to interact with and get help from because people love to help people. And as long as you're sincere and authentic and you're, and you listen to them, right. And you, and you take their feedback, you can have access to amazing people like that. Um, that, you know, uh, these are people that books are written about, right. And it's just, and it, it gives you so much perspective. It's just so helpful, but you have to be open to the learning. You have to have that growth mindset to be willing to answer tough questions and they're not answering, asking tough questions because they want to make you look bad. They're, they're, they, they ask them to help. Right. And so I just think, you know, having mentors and advisors is really important. Right. Yeah. And to ask for help, I think is huge because um, Joe Desh is the one who so graciously was able to introduce us. So, you know, really focus on the people that you know well, and they are more than willing to help. And that's just a testament to get in front of whoever you need to. Um, one of the last questions we have for you, Tim, is what is the worst career advice that you have heard throughout your years? And what is any advice that you wish you would have known, like right out of Case Western Reserve University that you would have known now? I don't know if I know. Uh, yeah. Worst career advice is kind of tough. I can tell you about mistakes I made. That might be more helpful. But the worst, I can't think of. But one of when I changed jobs one time, uh, I was changing jobs, but it was more about where I was leaving than when I, where I was going. In other words, I was trying to get out of a bad situation and was too willing to jump into any other situation, whether it was a good fit or not. Instead of now, when you're young, you're trying to, you know, you want to make sure you have a salary. And so you worry about those things. And it was, it was still a good job, but it wasn't necessarily the best job for me. And what I realized within a year was that really wasn't the best, best thing. I didn't, I may not have gone and got enough input and, you know, evaluated what my options were. I was a little bit probably too impatient at the time. So if you're looking to switch jobs and I get a lot of people come to me for career advice and they're in this situation, you know, don't mistake, you know, go where you want to go next, not, not go just to get out of where you are. That's great advice. Awesome. Tim, thank you so much for coming on to the Road to the Top podcast, for sharing your journey and advice for young professionals. I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. You got it, Will. Take care.